Welcome to the Leanne McCoy podcast. On this podcast, we talk about a lot of things, mostly prayer, but also spiritual warfare, parenting adult kids, and what it's like to be a church lady in an increasingly post-Christian world. This is the place where I contemplate things that are too wonderful for me, where I share interviews with people whose lives have greatly influenced mine, and where I remind you and me that no matter what we're going through, God's got this. I'm Leanne McCoy, and this is my podcast. In last week's episode, I shared the reasons deconstruction is such a thing today and discussed how we might respond to our loved ones who are deconstructing their faith. We're going to continue this conversation today as we make a feeble attempt (laughs) to get into the minds of deconstructing people. I know it's crazy to think that we can do that. And if any of them are listening today, they're going to laugh at our attempt. And some of them might even be offended at how we see things once we're in there. It's hard to understand why people think the way they do and what could possibly convince them to walk away from Jesus. It's especially hard for those of us who couldn't bear the thought of doing so. Even though I did get to a place in my life where I was so put out with God that I whined myself right into a spot where I kind of suggested that I might do that very thing, only to be asked by the Holy Spirit this question. So Leanne, this is where we part ways? It wasn't a threat, just a choice. I thought about it for a minute and cried out, Lord, I wouldn't even know how to get out of the bathtub without you. Yeah, I was in the bathtub when I had that conversation. And so, no, no, this isn't where we part ways. I don't like where you're taking me. But if you're going there too, I'm going with you all the way. I know, that sounds admirable and and strong even, especially if you knew what happened the next day in the next three and a half years. But somehow... I can't explain it. Many people today are making the life-altering decision to dismiss themselves from their Christian faith. Most of them will say they're dismissing themselves from the church and still working on their faith. And let's hope that as they work things out, we become positive influencers rather than reasons for them to never return. And the best way to do that is to have some understanding of what might be going on in their heads. So, here we go. Oh, you know what? One more thing. There's a great big difference between deconstruction and demolition. I've had friends who've restored old houses and I love old houses. When they do this, they carefully take the house apart so that they can put it back together. It's always a tedious process, expensive in both time and money, but the end result is amazing. Sometimes people decide that the taking apart is too much trouble or they discover that the bare bones are too rotten to restore the old house and so they stop trying to carefully deconstruct it and instead they simply demolish it and start building something new. There's no way we can really know which our loved ones are doing, but we can listen and learn and actually maintain our own sanity along the way. That's what I'm hoping to help you do as you listen to today's podcast. So this is part two of our three-part series on deconstruction. And in this episode, we're going to talk about how deconstruction affects them, the person deconstructing. If we want to build bridges to our people who are deconstructing their faith, we need to understand how deconstruction affects them. Deconstruction begins where objective truth ends. And I write truth with a capital T. 
One writer said it like this, deconstruction starts with the realization that all of reality is construed. I've already shared in the episode titled, what is deconstruction and how do we respond to it? That the origins of the term deconstruction um, were a part of this guy Derrida, the French philosopher, who challenged the ability of any reader to truly understand the text apart from understanding the culture and the experience of the writer. And since we can't really get inside the head of another person, can we really hang our hat on anything written by someone else? In this way, Derrida gives people permission to let go of the confidence that we can really know truth. Until I've been in deep conversations with people deconstructing their faith, I never knew when an anchor or how solidly my life sits on the foundation of the Bible. It's been challenged enough, believe you me, to make me search for answers pertaining to its reliability and integrity. And more than ever, I realized two things. I believe the Bible. It is the word of God. Every word of God is true. And where what the Bible says differs from the way that I think, the way that I feel, or the way that I behave, then I will change by the power of God's Holy Spirit. That's not original with me. All I want, all I was going to say was I believe the Bible and then the rest of it just kind of poured forth. That was a statement that the pastor that Tom and I um, attended his church while we were in seminary, he would often begin every one of his sermons with that statement. It was just an affirmation that we choose to anchor our lives on the reliability and the integrity of the Bible. But secondly, this is the second thing I realized, it takes less faith for me to believe the Bible than it would for me to doubt it. But that's me. Nevertheless, once a deconstructing person decides that there is no sacred ground that remains and that every tenet of their faith is up for debate, then they enter in to a conversation that's actually been going on since the beginning of time. And before I go any further in this podcast, I want to tell you that we're doing what Derrida said we really can't do. In other words, we're trying to get into the mind of another person. And But I guess we kind of can do it because we're studying the culture. We did that last week, especially when we talked about um, what kinds of things are going on in our culture that make deconstruction such a thing today. Um, So we're studying the culture that the people live in, but the part that we cannot study, we can only make observations from the outside. We can can make observations, especially if the person we're in relationship with is someone that we've been close to, but there is no way that we can even begin to pretend that we understand what it's like to be them and how the experiences of their lives affected them. And um, whatever it is, we have to know that what's gone on has brought them to this place. And um, as we're entering into what I'm about to talk about, I'm talking more about what happens to a person when they decide that there is no um, objective truth, that truth with a capital T no longer exists. All right, so go with me back to the conversation that's been going on since the beginning of time. When the serpent came up to Eve, His words to her were this, did God really say, with his implication being, do you really have to obey him? I mean, 
What is he really saying? And is that really true? Can you anchor your life on what God is saying to you? So when the person deconstructing their faith decides that truth indeed cannot be known or that it doesn't exist because everything is interpreted by each person's own perspective, then the authority of truth or God or the Bible, the authority that that once held in their lives begins to fade a lot like the mist does where I live on an August morning in Tennessee. You know what somebody told me one time was that the number of misty mornings you have in August will tell you the number of snows you're going to have in the winter. If that is the case, we better brace ourselves in Tennessee, girl, uh, girlfriends and boyfriends, <laughs> because we're going to have an awful lot of snow. It was foggy a lot this year in the month of August. But back to our back to the point at hand. Once that authority is removed, once a person has decided that truth doesn't actually exist, their first response might be to experience a sense of elation, only to realize a moment later that they are stripped bare, not literally, but spiritually. For the first time in their lives, they may feel both excited, but also exposed. And with that exposure comes vulnerability. You remember when God came walking in the garden and he was looking for Adam and Eve? He called out and Adam responded, we're hiding. We realized we were naked and we were afraid. So we've hidden. The actual response or the, the, the thing that happens once somebody decides truth doesn't exist is they, they're freed from any kind of burden they sensed living under such truth, but they're also exposed, vulnerable, naked even. But as they settle into their new reality, they might tiptoe toward the now empty throne in their lives where God once sat or where authority sat, where their parents' faith sat or where the church sat or where some godly person they admired where they sat. And they might stare at that vacant seat and ponder it. But then after a little while, they'll crawl up and kind of place their naked, shivering, unmasked selves on it. But their shivering slows as they warm up to the realization that they can now be the authority of their own lives. Where God once sat, they can sit. They no longer have to bow down under the mighty hand of God. And certainly not under the rules found in the Bible that are so contrary to culture. And they're released from the accountability that they once accepted from church as they've known it. If their deconstruction was initiated by some new insight or revelation, they can never go back to what they were and they can never not see what they've now seen. So they begin to recalibrate their own internal compasses in their own ways perhaps greatly influenced by others who've taken this journey before them. We mentioned that in the previous episode when I talked about the influence of social media and how many podcasts and YouTubes and, and um, you know social media influencers that you can follow who have taken this deconstruction journey and are there eager and ready to help you navigate your way as well. One person said it like this, Deconstruction begins to happen when we are presented with the idea that there is one narrow path, which is objective truth. 
and there's something wrong with you. In other words, you need to change, admit you're wrong or conform if you don't fit in. That is a deconstructed way of looking at the scripture where Jesus said the road is wide that leads to hell, but narrow is the road that leads to heaven. So what happens is not wanting to live with the not fitting in loneliness and certainly not wanting to conform. People deconstructing their faith look for others who feel the same as they do. They find these people on social media easily with a hashtag and they rally around the fact that they've had the courage to pull away from the institution, the harmful norm, the blind masses, or the old-fashioned unenlightened. If they grew up in the South, perhaps they've broken loose from the bless their hearts. They simply can't know what they don't know people. They begin to pursue this whole new world of anything I decide can be true for me. And they start redesigning their truth to be more aligned with what feels good, makes sense, and works best for them. Their new truth alleviates the tension they once experienced between Christianity and culture, but at the same time, it often creates tension between them and the community they held dear. Maybe their family and their closest friends. Of course, they can't really embrace their own truth without being affected by the experiences that led them to deconstruct in the first place. Thus, even their de deconstruction is construed by their experiences, especially the negative ones, the wounds, the trauma, and the disillusionment. But now that they've dared to question what we might consider the unquestionable, they come to new conclusions through the filter of their own experiences and they interpret discrepancies, infidelities, and abuses they or others have experienced in the name of Christianity as heinous evil that needs to be overcome. Because these abuses have happened within the church, the church itself is blamed for creating an environment where abuses happen. Usually, the first things to fall away are the things the Bible is frank about. Things that are unpopular in our culture today, like sexuality and abortion. They cite Christianity and biblical doctrine as what is wrong in the world today, believing that evidence proves the abuse of power in any institution that claims to know the truth is inevitable. And they can actually point to many instances in church history where this has been the case. Although they might not begin here, they eventually have to go after the doctrine of original sin. For to believe that we are incomplete, broken, stained, or flawed at the core is to make us less than fit to rule our own lives. If we are indeed sin-stained and will one day be required to give an account of our lives to a holy God, then we're certainly in desperate need of a Savior. But if we're merely individuals making decisions and experiencing life, learning from our mistakes and growing out of our failures, then we only need to accept ourselves as we are, find growth in our shortcomings and appreciate ourselves, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and make room for others to do the same. The worst possible thing we could do is admit we are sinners and condemn others with the same label. We're not the first Christians to live in a world where this is happening. The Apostle John wrote this in his letter to believers he knew in what is today Southern Turkey. This is what John wrote in 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves 
and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see, sin is only the problem if we refuse to admit we have the problem. (laughs) When we admit we're sinners and humbly understand that Jesus came to save us from our sin, then God already gave us the answer to our sin problem. But if we're not willing to admit it, according to 1 John 1, 8 through 10, we deceive ourselves. And and therefore, because we won't admit it, we have no need for a savior. So we so God, who is faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, is kept at arm's length and not invited to do so. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Hmm. New age. New Age, which I think is the major thought driving deconstruction that results in deconversion, rejects the Christian emphasis on sin and guilt, believing that these these things, this guilt and this sin generate fear. Fear is evil because it drives people to seek a solution to their problem and thus yields power to those who claim to have the answer to their problem. There's a lot of um, disdain for any uh, kind of power And the freedom is being interpreted to be um, free of having to having to bow down under or be subject to anything um, more powerful than yourself. The church reveals to you both your problem and the answer to it. How clever they might say a person who has deconverted. I don't even know if that's a thing. And I constantly say that. I don't know if deconversion is a thing. I can't figure that part out. But for people that embraced faith, practiced faith, participated in church, who then have decided not to do so, they may use this argument that the church reveals to you both your problem and has the answer to it. This then gives power to the church. And not only is this oppressive, it's also exclusive. For the church offers only one solution to the problem of sin, and that is Jesus. When Jesus becomes the answer, those who don't know Jesus don't have salvation, only those who do. And that doesn't seem quite right. Seems awfully exclusive, too narrow, and too demeaning to people. After all, step one in the salvation process is A, admit you are a sinner. To the deconstructing world, fear is what's given the church too much power through the ages. And you don't have to dig too deep to find ways church leaders have exploited people many times throughout history, holding them captive by their fear. The Catholic church became wealthy when it appealed to grief-stricken people who would do just about anything to save their loved ones who died, thinking that they are suspended in purgatory with only the gold of their loved ones given freely to the church being what keeps them from being hurled headlong into hell. Is it any wonder this way of thinking lures so many away from Christianity? To say we're sinners in need of a savior hinders, they would say, spiritual evolution and distracts from social utopia. Instead of embracing the creation story where life was breathed into us by the very breath of God 
And then where fellowship with him was broken when Eve and Adam chose to go their own way, leaving us all being born sin-stained, the popular spiritual story of origin today is that we are born divine, godlike, one with the divine, and intricately connected to all the rest of creation because we're made out of the same substance, which happens to be the chemical components of stardust. We are, excuse me, my phone. We are the result of a supernova, a star explosion. I just recently, over the holidays, actually over Thanksgiving, went to see the Disney movie Wish, where one of the funnest songs that they sing is I'm a star. Let me share with you the lyrics to this song. Have you ever wondered why you look up at the sky for answers? Or why the flowers and the wind are effortless and eloquent dancers? What forms the rings in the trees, turns a pine from a sea, seed? What passed down generationally to you and to me? And why our eyes all look like microscopic galaxies? Have you ever wondered why you look up at the sky for answers? Well, you don't have to look too hard. We're here for all your question marks. If you're trying to figure out just who you are, don't look far in the sky and your front yard, in your heart and in the scars. If you really want to know just who you are, you're a star. What I've just talked to you about are the options that people have of ways to deconstruct their faith and paths that they might travel. And I'd argue the most popular one that's replacing the practice of Christian faith in thousands of lives today is this option of, of um, believing that we're born divine and that if we would just quit telling people they're sinners, that we can fix what's wrong with our world in our own strength, our own amazing capacity, our own ability, our own connection to the divine that is in the world, apart from Jesus being at the very center of it. In keeping with the Western culture's rise of individualism, we have to confess that each person's faith journey is unique to them. Some people might continue to find development of their faith practice in the occult or other religions, especially those of Eastern origin, or they might return to the Christian faith with adjustments, kind of rewriting the script of Christianity so that it's more palatable in the world today. This is a very popular trend that's called progressive Christianity. Some people consider progressive Christianity as as significant in religious life as the Protestant Reformation. Other people return to their Christian faith more deeply rooted with greater compassion for those who are asking the hard questions and challenging the traditions. Traditions that might very well need to go. If someone you love is deconstructing, it's important to differentiate what we think is happening from what they think is happening. I want to pause right here and make sure that you just followed all of what I just shared. And that is that not all deconstruction results in deconversion. 
deconstruction is the process. It's the journey. It's the, it's the analyzing everything and asking the questions and expressing the doubts and pursuing the possibilities. That's what deconstruction is. And, and I believe that no one's journey is over until they take their last breath. We're all on a journey, a faith journey. I'm so grateful that I, um, have not been challenged in this way that Jesus has proven to be the best um, spiritual anchor for, for my life. And he's been faithful and true and good. And um, I have no complaints. I mean, all of my life, the things that I trusted him with, he's come through for me. And so, um, but for some people, it just is not so. And we must be patient and we must not get so upset about the fact that they're in the process. Now, yet they haven't decided anything. And even if they have, that doesn't mean it's the very end. Only God knows when they've gone past his, his patience, I should say. Anyway, it is important for us to differentiate between what we think is happening and what they think is happening when they're deconstructing. What we think is uh, is happening is that they are overcome with a spirit of rebellion. They're stubborn. They've chosen to be independent. They're determined to be wrong. What we think is that we are afraid for them. We're afraid for their salvation and for their well-being in their life. We blame them for breaking our relationship with them. After all, we've not changed. They have. We watch helplessly as they dismantle their faith piece by piece and begin to live outside the parameters that Christian, Christian faith creates. So in our world, we believe they're making one poor choice after another. We are certain they're being deceived, and we grieve over the fact that their faith is seemingly lost. What they think and feel. Everything that held them together is no longer holding them up. They're afraid, they're excited, they're eager to walk slowly through this process. They might feel alone and afraid. They would say that what is happening is happening to them, not by them. They hate that relationships are broken, but they feel like we broke them because of our stubborn insistence that absolute objective truth is still a thing and important enough to us to allow it to come between us. They despise us for being so determined to hold such a narrow view of salvation. They genuinely hurt for the hurt they're causing us. While we might be dealing with grief over what they're losing, they don't recognize that they're losing anything. They think they're gaining freedom from religion. They see their deconstruction as not a choice they're making, but rather a path they must walk driven by their disillusionment and maybe even their anger for being what they now consider deceived. They feel tremendous freedom from having to please us and from having to live within the boundaries of biblical instruction. And they're enjoying acceptance by their peers and by their culture, no longer at odds with these. And they're released from the icky ways being at odds with people makes you feel. One writer describes his process of deconstruction this way. My process of deconstruction led me to take apart my own faith. It was not a pretty process. I experienced a lot of anger mixed with a sense of liberation, and I deeply felt the anxiety one has when realizing the old certainties are gone. Here are common experiences that people deconstructing their faith have 
told us that they have experienced fear, loss, self-doubt, disorientation or identity disruption, excitement, relief or liberation, loneliness, shame, anger, frustration, wonder, vindication, anxiety, disillusionment. And did I say anger in there? Yes. You'll notice that some of these are positive emotions like excitement, wonder, and relief. I'm talking mostly about deconstruction that can and often leads to deconversion. And again, I'm saying if that's even a thing, but not all deconstruction lands in deconversion. Sometimes reconstruction begins and positive emotions then begin to win out. A rigorous and honest assessment of the beliefs that shaped us begins with disorientation but can eventually lead to a reorientation characterized by a deeper connection to faith, a sense of freedom, more confidence, deeper and genuine peacefulness and willingness to find comfort with mystery. Those things that you will never understand. When I read this, I think, you know, I've struggled with my faith. I never would call it deconstruction because I wasn't really taking it apart, but I've certainly had situations where I have needed to make breakthroughs to um, be, let's see, my good vernacular in Southern is in cahoots with God again. And it's felt a lot like what this is talking about. Okay, what people deconstructing have in common. What people deconstructing faith have in common. Number one, bad experiences with other Christians. Number two, exposure to virtuous non-Christians who are kinder than Christians. And number three, confronting intellectual challenges to the faith. Former believers love the results of their deconversion. This speaks to the nature of how they perceived their Christian experiences. They feel liberated from an oppressive system. Most have in common these three things. Number one, their Christian community included aspects of fundamentalism. Number two, they practiced a high level of Christian commitment. And number three, they had problems with Christianity while being a Christian. They share these concerns. First, theological issues with the goodness of God, his sovereignty and salvation, and eternal punishment. In their minds, to judge is to be judgmental, and how can something as painful as eternal torment be good? Of course, we understand that eternal torment is the result of denial of Christ, and God is actually demonstrating his righteousness when he executes judgment on those who reject Jesus. But nonetheless, the theological issues with the goodness of God and his sovereignty and salvation and eternal punishment. Number two is social issues that the church's response to are seemingly unloving and unkind, primarily issues such as abortion and homosexuality. Let me say something about abortion here. While my own daughter experienced an unplanned teenage pregnancy, I saw a church who loved her and wanted to extend God's grace and compassion toward her. She saw and experienced that, but at the same time, she also experienced people who gossiped about her, chastised her for hurting her parents, and ruining her family's reputation in the community, and even had to process the pain of hearing people who she knew were opposed to her dad and her mom 
be like her greatest advocates and heroes and wanting to rush to her um to her rescue that's the kind of thing that she dealt with when she was the daughter of the pastor at one of the largest churches in the community unplanned pregnancies are messy they're hard they happen because boys and girls men and women choose not to abstain from sex outside of marriage there's plenty of reasons why God instructs us to save sex for marriage. Even science proves that the hormone oxytocin released in sexual activity is the same one that's released in a mother's body when she's bonding with her newborn baby. God knew that casual sex with multiple partners would hurt one of them at one time or another. But back to unplanned pregnancies. In our culture, we know Christians are against abortion. We believe in the sanctity of life, and that belief is rooted in our faith that life is actually God-breathed and God-ordained. We believe that life begins at conception, so we can't sit idly by and watch our society murder innocent humans. The people who don't share our belief in the origin of life, those who don't believe that life begins at conception, point at us and wonder what we're doing to help single mothers and unprepared parents. What if every girl who ever got pregnant out of wedlock knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that she could come to any church on a Sunday morning, any church in her community and be loved? Her emotional, social, physical, and financial needs would be generously supplied by the people of God. What might happen to our abortion debate in America if every girl knew she could do that? Instead, Girls who are dealing with unplanned pregnancies have to become billboards to their indiscretion and they have to suffer the whispers and the judgments uh, and the I'm so disappointed from the people who are supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I know this is a sideline, but friends, it shouldn't be like this. Back to our conversation about people who are deconstructing their faith. Those that have lost their faith altogether have this to say, losing my faith set me free. I'm more pleased with myself, more comfortable in my own skin, relish the challenge of overcoming the deeply ingrained spiritual teaching, upbringing, and commitments of my youth. I'm calmer. I have higher self-esteem. I'm more honest. This is an exciting and growing time for me. I'm happier, more compassionate, have a greater sense of peace. No longer do I have to live up to unrealistic expectations. Guilt and condemnation are gone. I love that I no longer need to evangelize unbelievers. Now I can just enjoy them. I'm happier. I have more joy and contentment. I'm peaceful rather than anxious. I feel enlightened. I'm more open, tolerant, accepting, as opposed to being closed, intolerant, and exclusive. Basically, I like myself more. Wow. I don't know about you, but just wow. What do we do now? Seriously, we need to take a closer look at how others perceive us. For years, I've heard church leaders admonish us to engage, engage with our communities, live and love and interact with the people who live around us, not just those who are in the church. But it's just so much easier to stay within the safety of loving, serving, and sharing with people who believe like I do. It's hard to make friends outside of the church. It's scary. And yet we lose perspective of what they make of us if we don't interact with and spend time with them. Let's be intentional about befriending and be Jesusing <laughs> the people who don't believe in him. They will know what we believe by how we treat them. One of the greatest gifts I've received from deconstruction is the insight I've gained from the outside world. 
We need to listen and love more, talk and argue less. I'm not saying that we shouldn't continue to speak the truth in love. But what I am saying is that unless God takes the blinders off their eyes and gives them ears to hear, our words won't make a bit of difference when we're talking with them. Our words do make a tremendous difference when we're talking with God. He tells us to pray and keep praying, to knock and keep knocking, to ask and keep asking. We're not changing the hearts and minds of our people. They get to choose how they're going to live their lives. We're unleashing the power of heaven into their worlds. And we're going to battle against the powers of darkness that are manipulating and maneuvering our loved ones' free wills. When we're quiet, we allow people to share what's going on in their hearts and minds. I cannot believe I've failed to listen time and time again when I myself have always figured things out best when I've found myself a good listener. My mom is the best. She listens better than anyone I've ever known. I find myself talking to her for hours, hanging up the phone, then realizing I never asked what she had going on. <laughs> this past weekend over Thanksgiving, my mom, Mammer, my children call her, spent lots of time listening to my son share his dreams of making a living making music and art. She listened and encouraged and expressed genuine interest in all that he had to share. My son-in-law listens actively and affirms what he hears you feeling rather than what you're saying. I love how he does this. He's not just hearing words, but heart. And he lets you know he hears your heart by affirming how he hears that you feel. Such a great listening skill. We're such fixers and we want what we want when we want it. God's not like this at all. He's never in a hurry to get something or someone fixed. Instead, he just loves us through the journey. His attention is focused on how best to love in a way that will guide us to realize his love is genuine, perfect, complete, and true. He's patient. He's relentless. He's persistent. He's long-suffering and kind. What do we do now? We be like him. There you have it, friends. John 6, 44 says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. God has the power to draw our loved ones to himself. We do what he tells us to do and trust him to do what Jesus says he, he will do. So what does God tell us to do? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. My friends, we are to go share the good news of Jesus with those who will receive it. Teach them to obey what the Bible teaches and rest in the assurance that He is with us every step of the way until we get to what comes next. We have a real treat in store. My daughter Kaylee, who goes by Sayla now, who was um, the inspiration behind these podcasts, is going to get on with me after next week's release. And we're going to get her candid feedback to what we've been saying here. Then she and I are starting a new podcast we're calling Love Works. And then all in caps, HARD. And on this podcast, we will share the story of how our relationship has 
survived the journey of her deconstruction. Join us next week when we bring this short three-episode series discussion of dis- de- good heavens that's a mouthful join us next week when we bring this short three episode series on deconstruction to an end as we take a deep dive into how their deconstruction affects us and what we can do about that <laughs>